0: Happy New Year and welcome back to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we continue to ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And we are back from a week off for the holidays, made new women of us (laughs) and even better podcasters, I'm sure. Um, And today we're doing the last of our short series on three of our favorite film genres. If you recall, we covered melodrama in relation to to the contemporary film Spencer, and we did the musical in relation to the old and new versions of West Side Story. And now we're going to take on um, old and new versions of Nightmare Alley um, in order to discuss film noir, which is probably my favorite genre of all time. <laughs> the Coolest one. Um, so just to kick this off, let's start with the, the new version, the neo-noir, as they, as they tend to call it, anything made after, I don't know, the late 60s. That seems like the noir, neo-noir Nightmare Alley. It's currently playing in theaters, Um, flopped hugely, but very well received critically, which is happening a lot lately. Mm -hmm. Um, It's directed by Guillermo del Toro um, and has a, you know, a big starry cast, Um, Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins. Um, You probably know del Toro from, well, he had such a triumph with um, Shape of Water a couple of years ago. He does a lot of, you know, darker superhero stuff like Hellboy 1 and 2 sci-fi horror action in that area pacific Rim. he does a lot of horror chronos mimic the devil's backbone crimson peak um, and i kind of I'm trying to figure out how to describe it the kind of horror inflected fantasy of, of something like pan's labyrinth um is 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 where he's at mm-hmm. um, so let's just plunge into his version of nightmare alley yeah, I mean, in, think, me? in so many ways, he. Well, we haven't discussed it yet, dear listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, we
1: haven't, <laughs> in, except you know, so, like a brief text or two. But uh-huh. the um, I, he's the perfect director for this project in so many ways. You know, he's got the nightmarishly lush carnivalesque esque um, mm-hmm. aesthetic going on, which is mm-hmm. great for this world of literal carnival folk. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, but. I made the mistake of watching the earlier version before I watched mm. the new one. Yeah, so, I should have warned
0: you. God
1: damn it. <laughs> it. It falls into the pitfalls of so many films. It's The script is... Um, uh, co-adapted by Mm -hmm. uh, Guillermo del Toro, the director himself, and Kim Mm -hmm. Morgan. And Mm -hmm. um, the whole thing is based on a book by William Lindsay Gresham, as obviously was the first film. And they leech, I would say, in the new version, about 60% of the moral ambiguity out of the film, um, as most films today do. And they make everyone (laughs) a little more likable. And it really Mm -hmm. fucking bothered me. Um, And I love the first one for its bleakness everything was unsettling everyone was a garbage human being tyrone well, power i'm is,
0: gonna have to argue with that one. Oh, oh you're right not everyone
1: J- joan Blondell's
0: wonderful <laughs> and my wonderful. buddy <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> go ahead
1: she's great but uh the lead is you know and the old one is played by tyrone power who's like very like, it's hard to hard for me to like um uh disentangle my opinion of the new one from Mm -hmm. my like experience of the old one but Mm -hmm. tyrone power so beautifully cast against type he's you know he's so handsome and used to playing like heroic um blood and Mm -hmm. sand type (laughs) characters Mm -hmm. um and he they use him so subversively and wonderfully and he's so like i don't know like um uh, dark, but not deep <laughs> in this really mm-hmm. interesting way. Bradley mm-hmm. Cooper is just so suburban. That's the only word I <laughs> could use to describe him. Everyone in this film, practically you could meet at the Coffee Bean in in LA, okay? Except for <laughs> Kate Blanchett, who is turning in an actual performance where she mm-hmm. created a character that um, as I think you agree with, Eileen, mm. it, yes. it, it's, the old, it's one of the few performances that actually matches the visual pitch of the film, mm. which is you know uh, fantastical Um, so in general I would say eh, is it it seemed really long Uh, Mm -hmm. the first one is quite long as well Um, Mm -hmm. I thought the script was like uh, not exciting the acting was uneven Um, Mm -hmm. and I was uh, I think if I had not been invested in the first one
0: I would I would have skipped it but Mm -hmm. how about Mm -hmm. you I mean, I, in so many points, we agree. I, the one more, sev- I have a more severe take. I, I think it's very consistent stylistically. He's made moves that are, you know, the, the whole look of the film is seamless. And it's very, very gorgeous to the mm-hmm. point that sometimes you're just like, some of it was shot in Buffalo, my stomping ground. Right. And I, can't, oh shoot, I meant to look up the exact locations because there's this one for Kate Blanchett's character's office. Ugh. It is so beautiful that you just stop paying attention. I didn't. I'm just like, God damn, that's a beautiful office. Right. You know, just completely wood paneled. And I think it's, I forget the name of it. It's a kind of maple that just glows. It's just stunning. There's so much that's quite beautiful that it mm-hmm. sort of stops you. For me, it doesn't serve the material particularly. But again, I love the 47 version and I love the novel as well, but I don't remember it as well. And, mm-hmm. and Del Toro has said he, he thinks he's taking more from the novel than he is from the 47 version. The novel is a very mesmerizing, feel-bad trip (laughs) of an experience, really terrible. Um, It was written by William Lindsay Gresham, who was a very, very tormented, tormented man, increasingly mentally ill as he grew older, a desperate alcoholic, Mm -hmm. trying anything to escape from his insomnia, his paranoia, his mental demons, and failing. He winds up committing suicide in the same hotel where he wrote Nightmare Alley, which was his only big successful book. And, you know, he was a communist, and he found out about carnivals from talking to it, serving with a carny, um, fighting the Spanish Civil War, very glamorous in mm-hmm. his early life. Um, but at any rate, he, but he already had a fascination with carnivals, seeing it as a kind of way of talking about the horror of American culture writ large. Right. Um, this kind of division between the people who could figure out how to use you <laughs> to make money, how to con you, essentially, and the people who were suckers. Yes. and he saw that everywhere. So that's one of the wonderful things that he does. Um, that the, all the material does, in you know, every version is like, it's got to take on the fact that you go from this completely low rent, shabby rural carnival to swank nightclubs to a highly respectable psychiatric practice among the you know the rich and respectable, and it's all it's all parallel. <laughs> <the> peril- <laughs> it's all a con, yeah, all the way up. And yeah. it just gets to be trickier cons the higher you go,
1: thanks for bringing that up. I mean, I, I have to say, when I first saw I, I watched The Old Virgin in anticipation of this, and as soon as mm-hmm. I saw the film, I knew why this would be remade. Like, there right. is good reason to remake this. You right. know, we are absolutely in the in the era of snake oil salesmanship as we always have yeah. been. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it recently was. wreaked, you know, particular havoc in, uh-huh. in American politics. So, like, uh-huh. there is at least, you know, when people say, like, why remake this? Well, you know, it it does have, like, a pretty vital commentary on
0: American life in this way. It's just, that, yes. It's just that for me, Del Toro, even though he makes it very consistent, and if you like the choices he makes, you'll probably like the film. But for me, it's like to make it so, it's so gorgeously lurid. Mm. It, it That it's so fantastically full of sin-soaked and doom-soaked, I mean, he makes a big change. The big change he makes is that the lead character is Stan Carlisle, the one that's played by um, Bradley Cooper in, in Del Toro's version. Mm-hmm. Um, he starts him off doing what appears to be burying a body that you have to assume is, <laughs> it's there's something very bad going on because he then, douses it with gasoline and torches the entire house. It looks like a some sort of Midwestern farmhouse mm-hmm. and then walks away into the night with the roaring hellfire flames behind him. So you're going to find out what actually happened in flashbacks throughout, but you're already casting him in such a sinister light. Right. And so, you know, so consumed with the kind of psychological damage of guilt and clearly he's hiding out from the law. That's why he's wished, presumably, he's also kind of a hobo figure. He winds up joining the carnival, but already in this dark and desperate condition. When you meet him at the beginning of the, of the 47 version, he's just a guy. <laughs> right. He's, he's a guy that Xena spots walking away. He's new to the carnival. She's clearly drawn to him. He's super handsome. He's Tyrone Power. <laughs> but he's just a guy in a T-shirt, looking hot, but okay. <laughs> and, and, he's, and, he's, and he's a little overly drawn to the figure of the geek. Mm-hmm. In a way, he's fascinated. He admits he's fascinated by the dark, dark figure of the geek that even fellow carnival performers are ashamed of because it's a, you make a geek by taking a desperate alcoholic and and feeding them their supply and then suddenly depriving them so they'll do anything that you ask, and that includes biting off the heads of chickens and all of that stuff. That,
1: that's what that, a geek is, for those of you who don't know. You, yeah. It's a carny act where a guy bites off the heads of chickens.
0: Yeah, and, and does all sorts of bestial things, but that's the famous one that he does. Yeah. <laughs> and And yeah, so from the very beginning, this guy who at first just seems like a regular guy... But we're going to, f- he is, he's super glib, super charming, and that's going to get more and more sinister the, lo- the, the more he works his skills in this direction to rise in the world. And there's a kind of emptiness in him that even he realizes. He mm-hmm. asks Xena at one point, I wonder why I'm like this. But we're also getting hints why he's like this. He's had, you know, a typically terrible childhood abandoned by his parents, you know, raised in a in an orphanage run by, you know, um really nasty Christian types who both beat him and 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 sermonize at him. Mm-hmm. Um and he's come out of that experience sort of cynical and and with a slight sociopathic tendency not to be able to to care about people deeply. Which he admits Great. and is sort of worried about when he's young but he's still just a regular guy and that carnival is a regular low-ret carnival and you meet a couple of nice people, but you meet, you know, it's, it's also, you know, it's, it's a carnival, <laughs> a semi-old-school carnival. Mm-hmm. So Zena's wonderful. Zena, the Joan Blondell character, is the most honest, big-hearted, tolerant, savvy woman, a model for us all. She's ab- absolutely wonderful. It's so rare to see in an old Hollywood movie of that era a complete willingness to, to allow us to love her. The, right. this woman who admits she she drove she may have been the factor that turned her husband into an alcoholic she blames herself because right. she's having affairs right um during their marriage and she's having an affair with stan so she's trying to save her husband pete but pete also has even he's an alcoholic wreck she's saving him essentially from being a geek um she's he's he's got qualities that are charming um as well mm-hmm. so you you have a kind of build toward the increasingly sinister and the increasingly somewhat scary as you go in del toro's version you're just in it from the very very beginning yeah and it and it's sure it's there's some escalation but the whole tone the whole look of the piece is hellfire and damnation from from beginning to end and in Mm -hmm. a fantastical way that for me Takes away the scare factor because the, there's just an, an ordinariness about the 47 vision that makes it like, no, this is your world. This is right. you right <laughs> in a way that's a lot easier to, to connect to, I think, in a disturbing way.
1: Right, and I, I don't know how they did this, and I don't know why I'm so stuck on this, but mm. I even feel like so Tony Collette's portrayal yeah. of Xena, the Joan Blondell oh, yeah. part, really underwhelmed me, mm. and I thought it terrible. Pe- right? What the fuck? <laughs> and
0: she was good casting. It should have worked. Yeah, she's, yeah, you know, she, she's, she's a great, a great actor. deal of humanity, and she's a great actor, and she really projects. She's very likable in her projection usually. Absolutely so she could totally have played the hell out of that, and I was stunned at what they did to her. They she makes sexual, sexually toughness. totally crude. She just grabs him by the dick yeah. like basically from the from the get go and she just has none of the kind of weird you know homely kind of wisdom that that Zena has none right she yeah. she
1: lacks like the you know the strength and the guts of the Joan yes. Blondell character and in the, you know, the sort of like um the moment that encapsulates her character and the different mm. portrayals of this character happens when mm-hmm. Pete dies. Yeah. Um and the Joan Blondell character, you know, is moved but uh sort of toasts him. He was a good man, soldiers mm-hmm. on, and the mm-hmm. Tony Collette character collapses on the ground, you know, a weeping mm-hmm. mess. And to me this is like oh this is the opposite of that character. I just didn't understand. Mm-hmm. It was it was very sloppy and yeah. in its drive to like everyone was a little more vulnerable in this version, mm-hmm. but I thought it was like a cheap bid for sympathy and not yeah. in the name of complexity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they had everyone stand around her in a circle. It was a very odd way of shooting it, I thought as well. Yeah. Some, yeah. And, and what was weird was to me in the 47 version, you could tell there's a vast interest in the Xena and Pete characters. especially Xena, mm-hmm. because Zena's the counter. You can be in a sordid world. We all are. But you don't have to be. You can find ways not to be yourself. And she's the triumph of that. Hmm. And she keeps trying to help guide Stan away from his worst impulses. She keeps reading the tarot cards, which, you know, very typical of noir. You'll almost always have fake psychic acts and fake this and fake that that have grains of truth in them. So she's right with her tarot card. Mm -hmm. She she keeps warning him, um, you know, you're, you're headed down a bad path if you don't chain, you know, and she's quite right. And she's reading, you know, he's getting the same cards as Pete had. Right. Um and she's you're heading down toward alcoholic wreck standards and the, and the geek will threaten at that point. Yeah. Um so she, she's right about that but so she, so there's a sense of Zena being tapped into more than common wisdom and there's just a a kind of humor and an acknowledgment of human frailty that she brings to her own confession like she said her line is I have a heart as big as an artichoke with a leaf for everybody. <laughs> In other words, she even sleep it around a lot. Yeah. She knows it's her frailty. Yeah, And she knows it wounds Pete, and she's trying to limit how much more damage she does to him by saving him. And so there's all this kind of complexity and decency in, in her and humor in her and self-awareness that is just not... Del Toro doesn't seem interested. Yeah. So he very much truncates that early section of film. He really wants to get on to, you know, you can kind of understand he knows what to do when he's got Kate Blanchett as the femme fatale. Right. Because so she that seems what to Because <laughs> she knows what to do. So she's she's great. In, and you, I always admire actors who do this. They can read what you just said. They can read the tone and look at the film and match themselves to it. Yep. It's a harder thing than you think. It, she's the but only she, one. Yeah. And she's the, really the only one who fully gets
2: mm-hmm. like
0: what he's going. I've even read a couple of reviews that said she gives the only bad performance. The only over the top. I heard that too. Like, Fuck oh,
1: everyone. <laughs> you're so blind. wrong. She's the only one who gets <laughs> what.
0: Del Toro is trying for, for whatever reason, he wants it this way. Yeah. And she matches it and the others kind of don't. Rooney Mara, as I think you mentioned in a text to me, she does nothing. She's just like a blank.
1: She's such a cypher. I'm like, so. I'm yeah. so sick of Rooney Mara. And this is, you know, I'm like a huge and devotee of her. Carol. I thought you lo- yes, she, I, but, I wow. like, she's whatever. I don't even have an opinion about her in that film. She's mm. fine. But now I've started to hate her because she's the yeah. same in every fucking movie. And maybe yeah. it's the way that this character was written too. It's just like simpering and it's just mm-hmm. a non-entity. Like, it sucks. Yeah. In the earlier version, who is she played by? Eileen Colleen something?
0: Colleen Gray is her name.
1: She's a weird think, contract yeah. player. At least she's weird and interesting and has a sort mm. of, I don't know. She's got a, the, the, the first girl has like a real like vulnerability about her. Mm. I think also the way the characters is written in the 47 version is more, mm. um, oddly more sympathetic, you know, like, and the union between Stan, the main character, Bradley Cooper, Tyrone Power, and Molly in the first version is much more like, um, whoops, Stan got caught you know, yeah. whatever with this girl, and has to marry her. And in in this new version, he's like genuinely in love with her, which is like yes. not Stan at all. Come on, <laughs> you
0: know. And oh. and it's and it's based on nothing. You're just like what? Yeah. <laughs> in the in the in the forty seven version, is very honest. She's the best. He says you're the best looking girl in the carnival. <laughs> <Right. laughs> That's why I'm paying attention to you. And then yes, he gets stuck. He kind of has an interlude with her, gets caught by this strongman figure, Bruno, who's very protective of her, Mm -hmm. and Bruno basically chokes him, gets a stranglehold on him and chokes him until he finally says, uncle, meaning I agree, I'll marry her. He does not want to marry her.
2: Right. And he's only happy
0: again when he realizes he can now get away from the carnival and use her in the act, and he got the psychic act that he's going to become a big success with from Xena and Pete. Yeah. Um, so that's all very important. That, that the how Pete dies, his own the role that he plays in it. That's an ambiguous role. How much he's after that site that what's supposed to be. They make it very clear in the in the forty seven version. The, the the code book that they use to do this psychic act is worth a ton of money. Yeah. And and Zena and Peter holding on to it is as, as literally their nest egg, the most important thing that they have, and that and that he's trying to get it from them is thievery. <laughs> Mm-hmm. They don't do that at all, in the and there's no indication of that being a big deal. In fact, you know, Tony Collette just goes, yeah, take it. <laughs> right. Fine. She doesn't seem to care. There's no investment in it. So the, all of that early stuff, Del Toro just doesn't seem interested in mm-hmm. which is weird. It's the whole important moral setup. But and- he doesn't care partly because he's already made Stan a murderer. So he's already got a kind of motivating force for, you know, all that's troubling Stan. And, and in, the, in the earlier version, Stan's, the trouble is how bad, and what, you know, how, it, how bad it looks for the way he has treated his former friends which goes kind of goes on they come and try to visit him it's it's a very awkward visit he's wearing an ascot thing under his robe yeah he doesn't want anything to do with him it's it's more and more like you're seeing the soul rot happening to Stan.
1: okay what do you make of I don't I didn't even really know what to make of this except to thank God this is so del Toro um mm. so in the in the new version del Toro introduces uh, this fetus in a jar. Called yeah,
2: yeah Yes, that's <laughs> and, right.
1: And this is very Del Toro. If you've ever seen the shape of water, he's got mm. a thing for like odd creatures in you know what in looks water. like amniotic <laughs> fluid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and great. this Enoch thing is like a fetus who killed its mother. Or it's, I guess it was oh, right. a child. It was born. It uh, killed mm-hmm. its mother. It has like a third eye sort of mm-hmm. wanting to come through and it looks very yeah. odd and sinister. And it like lived mm-hmm. for a couple days and died. And this thing yeah. is in the it's in the office of the carnival boss when Stan first meets with him. Right. And it rec- like the the um, closing credits play out over its body. Um, mm-hmm. And it recurs at the end when Stan mm-hmm. um, it fulfills his destiny of becoming a geek. What the hell is Enoch? What do you think about? I have no idea. Right. I actually
0: <laughs> tried to think about it. I couldn't even remember the details of it. Isn't that weird? Even though it was wow. so overemphasized. Yeah. And I was like, what the hell was he saying again? Because I I couldn't connect it up with anything other than Del Toro wants this to be so luridly, monstrously awful that from the beginning, when Stan is being introduced to the carnival, you know, when it's clear he's going to be kept on in a greater role than just a day laborer, Willem Dafoe, who's you know, exuding sinisterness as a pimp mustache and everything else. Shows him Enoch. But everything about his introduction to the carnival is just evil. It's evil. Which for me is just like, what are you doing, man? But, you know, again, consistent. He's done this all along. Something wicked this way comes. This is all evil, evil, evil. (laughs) And I'm like, well, then how can you be moved by what happens to Stan? He's already a runaway murderer. He's fallen in in the evil carnival, <laughs> <laughs> and it's all going to be evil. And you're just like, yeah, I know. And I think that contributes to the kind of boring factor. Yeah, Kate She's it, working her heart out to make to make her her role much more the kind of climactic horror. But you know, there's there's a lot of work when you're starting at the level of Enoch. Right. <laughs> right exactly like how do we dispose of the geek there's all of this just it's just a just a crash course in how to be absolutely praved right in the dark possible way from the get-go right right yeah Yeah, it's i don't don't i
1: was i was training to make a connection to you know a quick google shows that i mean all you can think
0: i mean we have to do a spoiler to do a literal connection of enoch to stan uh uh-huh but even at that it's doesn't do anything for you for it, me
1: anyway it yeah. doesn't i don't know he really li- he lived a long time in the bible <laughs> i don't know what to say yeah. about that whatever i was
0: I, I also just couldn't couldn't get anywhere that one
1: <laughs> okay all right great good yeah. to know that we had um, yeah. like both had zero thoughts about that i um- mean and
0: just to show <laughs> that, that 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 he can't leave anything alone del toro wants to wants to boost into big effects everything so when you right away he's told stan is told how you make a geek Mm-hmm. He, you know, initially people, you know, get fooled by the carnival. The carnival sells the idea that he's a half man, half beast. He's one of the wonders of the world kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Freak show, kind of sideshow. And people don't know. So the question is, how do you get how do you find a geek? And you don't find a geek. You make a geek. How do you do it? Well, in the 47 version, you just take an alcoholic wreck and give him his alcohol, his bottle a day and then suddenly take it away from him. Mm-hmm. After he's gotten used to it and then he'll do anything. This this time Willem Dafoe dresses it all up and you have to you have to dose it <laughs> with opium right you, there's all this extra stuff and I'm just like why I don't just know alcoholism I guess isn't lurid enough so you've got to make it more lurid and make the geek more desperate everything's got to be pumped up more yeah and, and that it- is the feeling
1: totally and it's also like really expository or more expository the scripts like you know willem dafoe has to connect this to the war and it's like well duh Mm -hmm. you know and in the 47 in the 47 version you just see a very faint Kilroy was here graffiti Mm -hmm. behind tyrone power you know Mm -hmm. in a scene or two which is Mm -hmm. you know a world war ii soldier um sort of like classic um Uh and it 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 it's just so like clearly saying this is a social problem that is the result of World War <laughs> Two. Right, right, and right. It, they also do the same thing with that the book of codes. Um, in mm. this version, it's Pete, the guy, the older guy, the alcoholic, Zena's yeah. husband, who's invented mm. the codes, um, who's explaining to Stan, you know, um, I, I don't use this anymore, you know, it's uh basically like you're a attempting to be God with this stuff, turning it into a Mm -hmm. spook show. And Mm. it's like, that's the lesson that Stan has to learn for himself Mm. (laughs) in in the first version. And his Mm. wife, Molly does have a, um, sort of a moment where she brings up those things, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. come from like prior knowledge. You know, she, in the first version, she screams it out of just like distress, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is like a much more exciting way than this whole speech about like, here's the morality of this thing. Let me tell it to you before it happens so that
0: you (laughs) can be sure to know what's going to go on in the movie. You know, like,
1: fuck this script. It really bothered me. But anyway.
0: Yes, it really has some absurd things. There's a thing where, Tony Collette has done her has done her fake psychic act, but a woman confr- comes comes to see her after the fake psychic act to ask her more, and and Tony Collette's character Zena says, "Well, naturally, I just told her the truth that it was all a fake. It was all a fake because that would have been ir- immoral." And I'm just like, "What? Well, that's gonna be pretty rough on the carnival when they come back around again, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> because you can't go around telling everybody it's all a big fake. That would never have happened." And and the whole key division for Stan. His, his whole goal of being becomes more and more what he loves about the carnival. Tyrone Power in, in, is super exuberant. He loves the carnival. And he's like, I love it because I'm over here with the people who know what's going on. The wise up people. And yeah. the suckers are out there. I love it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's the first time I ever loved anything. And that, is, that, Im, that impulse to be super, the superior con artist figure is going to grow on him because it puts you in a better place than, the, than humanity right in a time when you can look around in the scenes of the carnival and humanity ain't looking so good. It's right. a lot of like downtrodden, dusty hicks whose only excitement is to go to this sad little carnival. It's very very like this is not why do they love the carnival? Anything to get off that goddamn farm. <laughs> you right? know whatever. It has that quality of of like you know again relating it to ordinary human Um, life ain't great, there's a reason you try to escape it. So Stan desperately wants to be in the know, super successful, be that con figure who can't be conned. So when he finally is conned by a way bigger con artist, that's what annihilates him. It's got to make sense that Stan goes from, sure, he's wrecked financially, but that he can't recover. (laughs) Right. He can't recover from being put back into sucker status. Um, And that just doesn't come across at all. In, in Del Toro's version Which, okay, that would be okay But I'm not sure what does come across in its stead Except that we knew Stan was doomed for his sins Right And he's doomed and we're like, yeah, but we knew that. <laughs> we always knew that. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And it tends to like, I don't know how I can justify this opinion. And maybe it's just my prejudice against this newer version. But instead mm. of the world being full of con men and con mm. women and, you know, yeah. um, it's more like this guy is just inexplicably evil. He comes out <laughs> of evil. He does evil. And that's yeah. it. You know? Yeah. And, and again, I'm just like, I don't know. I'm uh I'm underwhelmed by it. I would think that the sort of like political critique is that this is a country right. full of
0: bullshit. <laughs> that is <laughs> exactly, exactly what it is. And you're right that even though Kate Blanchett is working her heart out and doing being great. Yeah. Again, just but the way she's set up in the film, you can't get the full impact. Like like when Tyrone Power finds out that the Lilith in his version, played by Helen Walker in a much more tamped-down low-key way, mm-hmm. is actually recording her clients so she has records of what all of these wealthy people are saying and he's just like oh my god we could stand the town on this ear if we get together which of course they're going to yeah so finding out that she's got essentially a, a potentially better racket than he does is is very clear like oh my god the higher i go the better the cons yep it's clear it comes across very clearly but in del toro's version again you kind of don't get the full impact it's just like yes oh. <laughs> i don't know it doesn't It's not what you'd come away with, I don't think. It's so true.
1: Oh my God, it's so true. And again, I mean, we could even extend this to the way Grindel, the the rich guy who's involved in the sort of climax Mm. of the film, is portrayed. In the old version... He's rich. Uh, Maybe you feel sorry for him. Maybe you don't. Um, He, uh, they, we do spoilers, right? We can spoil this. I Um, think we might
0: as well just spoil the hell out of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) uh, You know, the con is that um, Stan dresses his wife up, Molly, to look like this rich guy's dead love. And Mm. in the original version, Stan, like, kind of slugs him because the con is uh, found out. And uh, the guy, you kind of figure, like,
0: oh, man, he might have killed the guy. You might have hurt him. Yeah. He He even says, I might have killed him. But he just knocks him down really hard. And he's an old man. But yeah. That's it. And then he runs. Yeah. That's it. In this
1: new version, <sighs> no, this this relationship is like oh. really strung out and you find out that this rich guy who's going to mm. meet a, a quite a violent death in this version, mm. um it's okay though because it turns yes. out that he confesses to having raped many young women or as many he said puts women. it hurt hurt them. So it's yes. like again the uh the moral ambiguity of like i don't know like whatever happens to this rich guy is made very clear and actually Mm -hmm. there is no ambiguity he deserves what's coming to him because he's a
0: rapist (laughs) yes and he's gonna get his face beaten in in gory detail you're gonna get to look right at the crater in his face in the whole nine yards yeah yeah and yeah yeah and he's so vicious in the end that you're like but you're kind of like oh all right But the other one, it's an old man. He, he's cast to look kind of like one of those old men who's corrupt. He admits he's led a very bad life, mm-hmm. but he doesn't, he can't, well, he can't give you the details. Um, you know, for one thing, he forced the, his love of his life to, to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is, I can't remember if that's what's supposed to have killed her or what. That's certainly clear in the del Toro version, but I can't remember if that's really how it happens. But anyway, he did. Mm-hmm. So he's done all this bad stuff, but it's all, it's, it, you, you were left to, you don't know. <laughs> right, But then when when the Richard Jenkins character Which is, um, he's playing the Brindle He just, he lays it out in just Vicious detail, and then you're like, oh And then he's beaten to death, and you're like, meh nah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, guess, I guess it was coming guess, to you <laughs> I guess <laughs> he had it coming <laughs> yeah. Okay <laughs> Yeah, so in other words It's hard, because it's it, it, To compare the two, especially And it may have been easier just to watch one And then try to come to terms with it on its own terms But it is hard, I should have warned you I um, to watch the 47 version, really feel it working, and then watch this version and, and feel a bit confused yes. about what he's trying to achieve. It's a little bit like Enoch syndrome takes over the whole film.
2: Right. Even right. though it feels
0: consistent in making everything more lurid and everything more sinful and everything bigger. In the end, you're like, but to, to suggest what? Um,
1: And okay, one more detail before, because I do have some questions for you about how this fits in with film noir. Um, Mm -hmm. What do we think about, so Lilith, Dr. Lilith Ritter, in the first version, she uh, makes a play for Stan, but they never hook up. Um, In this version, it's implied that they are sleeping together. It doesn't really matter. I mean, the relationship's very similar, you know, in, Mm -hmm. in both. But inexplicably to me, Kate Blanchett Mm. during one moment like returns for the bathroom with her blouse open and she's got a huge scar in the middle Mm. of her chest and she's basically like life got to me
0: yes he says what happened to you and she says life
1: Uh, it's like well (laughs) duh I mean she's already this (laughs) fucked up psychiatrist you know like uh, screwing over all her clients I just Mm. why this is like to me, this is the film in a nutshell. Like, they made mm-hmm. something so literal. that <laughs> didn't need yes. to be literal.
0: Yeah. I- and I wish I could remember. It's years since I read the book. I'll have to go back to the book. I mean, the book, to, to be fair, the book does make it very clear that Stan and, and Lilith are having a huge hot affair and he becomes more and more obsessed
1: oh well good for stan so, in the first one i was like yeah. stan why don't you but and it's anyway. weird <laughs> and this, it's
0: the weirdest thing about the 47 version the hardest thing to understand is why they don't because huh. by the time nightmare ellie comes along the femme fatale figure is already there absolutely there in a well-known fight yeah and she always seduces always right and so it's not like that is censored so when you're watching that in the in 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 the forty seven version you're like that is so odd it's really an unusual move there's all there's always the indication that that it's the mesmerizing sex that has hooked the man and and made him yeah she's using her sexual wiles to enthrall him and take him and fleece him um that's always true. just think of phyllis Phyllis Dietrichson in in double indemnity that's the model for the femme fatale so there's no reason to censor that, but they do it anyway.
1: I got the, like, my, I mean, my, I, I'm with you. I, I like, mm. didn't understand, given that, mm. the usual context. But I thought, well, maybe since she's a psychiatrist, that makes her, like, crypto-queer. <laughs> and, and she's just a manipulative lesbian. Oh, um, and I think that's
0: absolutely right. She definitely okay. has, is being coded. She's wearing, you know, there's a couple of scenes where she has, like, the shoulder pads and all that. The yeah. Sooty, the sooty look. The sooty career look was sure. often... A kind of code for, for a lesbian. Yeah. Definitely. But that she makes the play for him is just so odd. And then he says, no, because we can't be, you know, we can't risk being seen. We, you know, it, it seems, though, the only consistency I can think of is they really want to make what's seducing Stan, it's the con. It's, the, mm-hmm. it's loving being part of an ever better con that elevates him in his own mind ever more over that dreaded sucker, based figure of the ordinary human being.
2: I'm totally with what's you. that's
0: enthralled him more than anything. And that's why, how she can fool him, <laughs> you know? Because she's a better con artist and he just hasn't really fully realized, well, of course that can turn on you. Right. It's never going to be safe to be next to a better con artist ever.
1: Right, right. Um,
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, I
1: think it actually is consistent in the 47 version, especially with his attitude towards, you know, romance or whatever. Like he's, right. he's not into his wife. He's not yes. into Lilith. You get the, you know... The, as you say, his only
0: motivation mm-hmm. is to be on top, you know, right. be, be the winner. Um, so that's what I've always assumed. I mean, I, I didn't even notice it. I've seen this movie a million times, the 47 version. So I didn't even notice it until late in the game. And I suddenly went, huh, that is so odd. Yes. But it always worked for me up to that. And I think that's exactly why. It's mm-hmm. because it has a kind of logical, emotional logic consistency when it comes to the stand here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that they didn't want to muddy it with, oh, it's just once again, he's been sexually enthralled by the fem, blah, blah. blah right which is less interesting right yeah it is <laughs> You've seen it that is that a million times yeah but yeah i think that's supposed to be what's going on in um in the in the del toro version yeah okay okay yeah 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 but again, but yeah, this- the scar thing. God, God knows. I was Ugh, just like, "What?" So <laughs> embarrassing.
1: It's awful. Another weird, like yeah. expository, like literalism. You
0: know, but yeah. And then he has to go kiss the scar, and it's <laughs> just like, oh, okay, <laughs> it's the worst. It's the worst. Yeah, and I think it's it is the trying so hard and getting so fantastical in the look as well as in in the whole approach. There's just you. It's hard to get a feeling of like this relates to ordinary life. that that really starts separating Nightmare Alley from uh, typical goals of film noir. Among the fascinations of film noir are, it's an expression, like literally drawn from German expressionism look of extreme visuals tied to gritty realism. Yeah. So in an era where you're starting to shoot more and more on location, and especially for film noir, the city streets thing, a lot of it is right on location. You tie that to the the extreme fantastical nightmare surreal quality of extreme lighting and stuff. And you get this weird push-pull of I can recognize this as the real world I live in and it's a nightmare world, which was, that was frankly one of the goals of German expressionism. Yeah. The the argument basically being you live in a nightmare world, you just don't see it. You think we're showing you something fantastical? We're showing you the reality. Mm. Um, So that was a big, and it it had political implications and social, you know, social criticism built in, very savage social criticism in to german expressionism so a lot of just with the look that literally came over from artists fleeing the nazis um like fritz lang and billy wilder and robert siad they're they're all coming carl frund the the cinematographer they're literally fleeing the nazis and they bring their german expressionist training with them it's one (laughs) of the key components of noir but it isn't just the visuals it's attitudes of existential horror Right. And a kind of shock recognition of this is the world you live in And you somehow have been able not to see What a nightmare world it is So, so that's partly why I love the 47 version It does that to perfection oh,
1: Well, So what is your, I mean ultimately Do you think this <clears throat> film fails on that front Or like doesn't live up to
0: the Or at least does something so neo-noir Neo-noir is this weird category where we say Elements of noir continues, but of course it morphs, you know, as the culture change. Mm -hmm. But it's so baggy that that you know, film noir is already a messy category where you can get people fighting all over the place over whether this fits or that fits. You know, there's a core group of films everyone agrees on, but you very quickly get into films that, you know, people are like, I don't know, really you think so? Yeah. Neo noir is just full of films that are you can sort of see the relationship, but then you're like, Yeah, but it seems so different. Hmm. um, that I'm not sure it still is. You know this. When when Del Toro works in his horror fantasy version of the world, like with Pan's Labyrinth, it doesn't seem like noir to me. It yeah. seems like something else. So yeah. I'm not even sure it still is noir. It's tied to noir, absolutely. But it's and it's got a black vision of the world. But the vision of the world again, it seems so fantastical. I'm like, eh. <laughs>
1: is is noir uh, always about crime?
0: Usually, it's about crime. I'm trying to okay. give you an example of one that isn't about crime. In fact, in fact, in America, it took a very long time for film noir, which is a French term, obviously, to be taken up. It doesn't get taken up until, like, the late 60s. It's usually, they were often referred to as crime melodramas.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, they had, there were a number of names for them. Um, they didn't know what to call them You know, detect- if they had a detective They'd just call it a detective film Films that we now group among film noir So so for a long, long time You know, critics, marketers, etc Had no notion that this was considered a new genre So they weren't calling it that But crime melodramas was one of the typical things Because there was almost always crime involved
1: Right, right, okay So there's always like a social problem, right?
0: Yeah, so the social problem film is Of the 30s, early 30s Is literally one of the component parts There's a bunch of component parts hard-boiled pulp fiction novels mm-hmm. which have been popular for a very long time um they'd give us the Maltese Falcon and you know uh the, you know the, the, uh, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and Horace McCoy and Cornell Woolrich and all these writers are writing stuff that's going to be source material for a lot of film noir right. um so that's an absolute key and in fact, when when a French critic names the, the film's film noir, he's naming it after the so-called Siren Noir Black series of books that are just a French publisher, I think Mar, was publishing um a whole run of Chandler, Hammett, hard-boiled pulp fiction novels from America. So mm-hmm. he recognized immediately the, the relationship. That's where the name comes from. Um so yeah, they tended to tend there tends to be definitely a prime component and Um, So there's gangster, there's gangster crossover. A lot of times you'll have gangsters. There's the detective film. It's Mm -hmm. drawn into it, but in a new hard-boiled form. There's a couple of um, major influences of art film movements. Again, I've already mentioned German Expressionism, which was at its peak. started in 1919 with Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and it runs through the 20s until the Nazis put a stop to it because they hate the form. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, they drive out a ton of their top talent. French poetic realism, if you watch some 1930s really doomy, (laughs) (laughs) Um, really doomy films based, uh, set amongst marginal characters, criminals, prostitutes who are alienated from society, Um, and usually trying to, someone usually almost always played by Jean Gabin, who was great, Mm -hmm. Um, very working class hero kind of guy, and he's always trying to redeem his horrible, miserable life in his alienated state with one last shot at love, which always fails and he always dies. Okay. <laughs> um, so doomy, me, doomy. Me. Nazis, Nazis hated that and ended that too. They hated this whole form. They considered it desperately sick.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. So did Americans when they first started seeing these films. <laughs> the sickness that has come to our shores. Yes. Of course. Um. Yeah. Ah. Uh, so those forms. What else? What else? Uh. I'm out of the Can I
1: ask you? How thinking yeah. of Lilith Ritter and you yeah. know sickness? Um. Mm-hmm. And you know Nazis and obviously like the mm-hmm. fear of um Jewish. Critique, contamination, (laughs) (laughs) and, and, you know, uh, thinking. And um, Mm -hmm. so how does psychiatry fit into neo-noir or, or, because it seems like there's, always like the psychiatrist and is always kind of an evil figure always, in these movies. Almost
0: always. Okay. <laughs> in fact, you're hard pressed in those years in Hollywood to ever in any genre find find a, a psychiatrist that anybody likes. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a while.
1: Um yeah. Claude Rains um, is Voyager.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's the yeah, only likable right. one I could think of. Yeah. <laughs> so there's very few compared to the number of terrible yes. Yeah. But um I think it's it's another name that sometimes got applied with psychological thrillers because a sick psychology was also considered central to these films. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but but having, I think having a Redeemer figure who could actually help you in some sensible same way <laughs> is not going to suit the, the film noir, you know, attitude toward the world. Right, um, right. So yeah, so among the more sinister figures is going to be someone trying to further mess with your head (laughs) right? (laughs) who you know anyone in institutional authority tends to be suspect in film noir there's a tremendous level of disaffection from institutional authority Hmm. until you start getting the censors imposing it so you get a whole sort of sub sub genre of police procedurals um etc that generally are forced to pay tribute to you know, the brave men of the NYPD or the LAPD or the FBI. And if you do that as a frame within the interior, you were allowed to get as sick as you wanted. As long (laughs) as you had a tribute to law enforcement and they prevailed at the end. But until they forced that, and that was more of a, I think it was kind of an early fifties, more of a fifties thing. Okay. Um, in the 40s, cops were almost always crooked. Any governmental authority figures tended to be also <laughs> vile human beings. You know, mm-hmm. institutions were completely suspect. Uh, you know, we, again, there are literally a number of films about brutal cops who are sick in the head. Um, one one by Nicholas Ray is called "On Dangerous Ground." Oh, right. <laughs> Rob, played by Robert Ryan, who specialized in somebody who's you know violent and sick in the head. Beautiful okay art. okay lovely man of course behind <laughs> the scenes, but it's just gifted in that way um so yeah so the the horribly brutal crooked cop is a, is is one of the one of the main categories sometimes he's the protagonist or, okay. or rather anti-hero of film noir so yeah it's just that deep suspicion um that obviously nightmare ellie had like the whole world is rotten <laughs> right and the further you go up in institutional power the Rotten regrets is not at all an unusual take in film noir.
1: Do you think that changes throughout the decades? Like, well, first, maybe you can tell us, like, at which point you kind of touched on this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, during which decades does noir come back with a vengeance as a genre? And... As it comes back, you know, how does its take on the world Mm -hmm. change? So, you know, from the 40s and the 50s to the resurgence Mm in the 70s with, like, Chinatown Mm -hmm. um, to, like, all those piece of shit neo-noirs in the 90s, (laughs) all the erotic thrillers to, I don't know, do you think, are are there many neo-noirs today? And do you see, like, a marked difference in each of those resurgences regarding, like, you know, what the genre has to say about, like, institutions of power?
0: Well, okay. If we do kind of a timeline, if you go back to say the '30s, you start seeing in the mid to late '30s the beginnings of of what you might call proto-film noir stuff. Where you're seeing recognizing several components. Fritz Lang comes over to America basically. Yeah, I've often explained it that way. he makes two of them: Fury in '36, and you only live you only live what is it? you only live once. Uh huh. And I think it's '37 or '38. And there's another one called Stranger on the Third Floor. So there's a hmm. there's an earlier early trickle starting to. But it's it's put down pretty firmly, even after Maltese Falcon gets made, a very faithful version in 1941, it gets made. Um, it's a huge success, and everybody now is like, "God, let's adapt all of these <laughs> hardboiled <laughs> thrillers, especially with detectives. People love them." But the war is now on, and these are very dark, authority questioning, skeptical. Not behind the American way. In fact, taking a, uh, looking at America in a way that just is atypical of any film that ever came out of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And they just got crushed. The, the, the studios were working very closely with the government, hand in glove with the government, on what do you want us to produce that will help the war effort? so jolly affirming musicals (laughs) and patriotic (laughs) war (laughs) moves you know all that stuff that's escapist but also completely on board with the whole war you know overwhelming the whole society war project so they just squelched all the all almost all the film noir a few sneak through there's one in 42 one in 43 there's a tiny trickle but it's and you know keep in mind too early World War II is going very badly for the Allies. We, we, it looks like we're losing. It looks like we're all going to be speaking German kind, of, kind yeah. of situation in those early couple of years. As it eases up, the Allies start to win more battles. You start to see the trickle becoming a bigger and bigger flood. Until 44, 45, you're getting lots of things. Mm-hmm. And it's, so, of course, that's how the French wind up seeing a ton all at once and going, holy God, sacre bleu. Yeah. These are fabulous films. This is a whole new genre. <laughs> America's got a whole new fabulous genre, which we had no idea about. So then builds, 40s 40, 40 considered the classic era. You've got tons of them being made. They're refining the form. It's getting more and more exciting. 50s, it starts. There's a new kind of, um, like I mentioned, there's, there's some new wrinkles. Things like the semi documentary thing that I first mentioned that tends to be with cops. Right. They have to be praised. So you have a certain amount. It's The blacklist era mm. um, is, is really heavy in the early, you know, it starts right after the war, but it gets really heavy in the early 50s. Everyone is extra paranoid a lot of people who were involved in film noir are people who get blacklisted or are threatened with blacklisting. You get more and more extreme film noir as you move through the 50s. You just get, start getting wild stuff where not only are they trying to top themselves stylistically, it's already a super stylistically extreme form. You just start getting crazy shit. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so Sam Fuller, who's considered the great brutal primitivist of cinema is starting to make films like Pick Up on South Street and Shock or, and, Orson Welles does Touch of Evil, which is, if you've seen it, it opens with an eight minute, I think it's a seven or eight minute tracking shot ending Mm -hmm. on an interracial kiss that's immediately shot cut into an explosion. (laughs) Uh, And so you're starting to just get incredibly wilder and more daring and crazier. So it it goes so far, it kind of can't go any further. And then it starts to really taper off late 50s, early 60s, the tiny turn. Mm-hmm. and it it starts fading out as a genre but what happens is culturally you're starting to get the rise of you know the whole counterculture movement you know of the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. where fighting against established mainstream culture on the part of youth and believe me youth is your main audience left at that point, at the point at that point because the studio system started to fail it's losing its general audiences and but young people, usually college age, are the last cinephiles who are constantly going to the movies and they start pitching everything to them. And if they want cult- counterculture, they can have it. And among the genres they discover, they're very into film, is film noir and they love it. They absolutely mm-hmm. love it. So this is where you start getting neo noir that you really will say, that's neo noir. Mm-hmm. So point blank with Lee Marvin in, I think it's 67, um, Chinatown 74, and probably between. 67 and 75 you're getting some just a, a bunch of neonore coming out and it's still fabulous and it still seems tied enough um to the earlier era that it's highly recognizable as such it's okay. just being reapplied <laughs> in you know an even more angry and mordant <laughs> look at the traditional american way
2: mm-hmm.
0: it's after that that it starts getting loosey-goosey and okay. harder to track so, you know, it's not like it keeps going, as we know, 80s, 90s, you're still getting. And in fact, it develops a ton of like cachet. When I had my brief fling in Hollywood in the in the you know early 90s, all you had to say was there was going to be some kind of film noir aspect to your work right. to get like people like, really, yeah. that's the coolest thing ever. It was really <laughs> as if they just heard of it or something. So, yeah, you got tons of all this neo-noir stuff. Coming out like John Dahl built his whole career on things like Last Seduction and Red Rock West. And you know, there's yeah. a ton of it. Ridley Getting Scott. pumped into the system. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And there's some good stuff. There's, you start splicing. Some of the better ones are the ones that splice with sci- science fiction. So Blade Runner
2: mm-hmm.
0: is, kind of leads the form as, as melding clear-cut aspects of film noir with sci-fi. And that just leads to Dark City and, I don't know, 12 Monkeys. And there's lots and lots of sci-fi um, noir hybrid. Um, it just goes, it, it kind of goes into film DNA to a certain extent. To me, the most painful ones are usually the ones that are trying to be film noir, because as you already pointed out, it becomes an excuse for a kind of s erotica. Right. It's not interesting. Right. It doesn't tie itself to any interesting anything. Critique, existential awareness of the world as a brutal place. Right. It just is turning it all into, I don't know, <laughs> um, I, a, just kind of ordinary creepy thrills.
1: I yeah. just saw the worst. Uh, I don't know what you got. I guess neo noir over the weekend. No. Um, Ridley Scott's 1987, "Someone to Watch Over Me." Oh,
0: I saw <laughs> that when it came out, and I was just sat there going, "What the hell's <laughs> happened to you, man?" Ridley Scott, the most puzzling director. Yeah, he makes a couple of masterpieces, and then and then just Drek, just piles of shit. What totally, is up with that guy?
1: but it's oh like very God. stylish Drek. It, um, you know, it was very, very watchable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but yes, it, it's. There's, as you said, like, there's no, the cops are the good guys unequivocally. There's no corruption. There's just like this (laughs) bad gangster. And and it's like, it makes no sense. According to a traditional film noir view of the world, you know? See
0: the whole thrill of film noir, and not that it will be in every single one, but a lot of them, they they are just taking such a whole world view that I can only assume is an attitude that's springing out of the thirties international, like international great depression yeah. devastated the world then world war ii so you're coming out of this with a kind of world a kind of world knowledge sensibility that you'd rather not have <laughs> <laughs> like the world is really a horribly fucked up place and mm-hmm. there's no more staying home on the farmer in my small town and pretending it ain't so mm-hmm. and so this kind of whole this you get you, so far into the shocking you know, there's almost always a, a character that has to be more fully plunged into the horrors of the world one of the more fascinating moves that gets made is it begins to move into a semi-occult territory or a mystical territory or or the french would say an existential territory Mm -hmm. there's something more than just corrupt corruption human corruption right there's something blacker and bigger there's something cosmically wrong and that's where it just shades over (laughs) into a level of like wow Exciting Now, because we're we're sort of getting into pop philosophy and pop mysticism mm-hmm. in a way that's exciting. But it, that really seems to spring out of a human feeling of like, this ain't just that the cops are corrupt. Right. This is much bigger. And th- that all goes away. And most most people who try to do neo noir don't even seem to know how often there were corrupt you know fakey religious figures fake psychics fake this fake that. Right. Uh, you know they, they don't seem to know this the cohen brothers know it so they they literally when they, they were making a i think man who wasn't there one of the characters they're like "Is we got to have a fake psychic it's always a <laughs> fake psychic and sometimes there's a fake psychic who becomes a real psychic in the middle of their act there's a film noir called night is a thousand eyes <gasps> That's exactly that. He's, Ooh, he's doing his fake act. It's, it's Edward G. Robinson. And he suddenly finds he can see how each person he, he talks to is going to die. <gasps> <laughs> it's wonderful. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So, so they, they are very aware of, if, and if you see the man who wasn't there, almost no one saw it. It was one of the great neo-noir that really takes on noir with tremendous expertise. It's all, it it really is very much that is he's becoming more and explicitly more and more aware of the bizarreness of his own life and the bizarreness of the world and more and more trying to figure out what am I in here? He, the last shot is him being electrocuted <laughs> for the wrong murder. He did one murder. He didn't do the other one, but he gets electrocuted for the one he didn't do it. Anyway, as he's he literally leans into it, you know, he leans upward <laughs> to try to dive faster because then he's like, maybe I'll then I'll know. Oh, I'll my know God i know what I'm in. <laughs> wow. Beautiful. Mwah! Chef's kiss. I sat watching Man Who Wasn't There. I think it's a 2000, 2001 Right around there, there were a couple of interesting ones, if I recall, mm-hmm. that came up. And I sat there watching it, just going, Well, that's everything I said in my dissertation and more. Every <laughs> point. They have made every point. <laughs>
1: uh-huh, that's wonderful.
0: <laughs> oh, it was so exciting.
1: Eileen, tell us what your dissertation was about.
0: Oh God. I'm only gonna tell you <laughs> one brief thing. I'll tell you one brief thing and then I will not say anymore because I blanked it out it's too horrifying (laughs) you know it's on file somewhere and it's just awful and you know it um i just wanted to deal with this phenomenon in film noir where there's a confrontation with death that has to happen and you often it's a corpse so it almost has a kind of detective fiction quality where you know you know you have to have a dead body before, Mm -hmm. before you can engage but there's a very strong strain in film noir about the encounter with death being fundamental for alerting you to what you don't know and making you kind of sickeningly long to know, to understand um, what the world is and what you're in. And it sends you all these kinds of crazy quests. And then there's all it gets to be all sorts of tricky things, like through the flashback structure, how often you can kill someone and resurrect them filmically. Mm-hmm. So like in The Killers, there's a character called The Swede, played by Burt Lancaster, and through flashbacks... Narrated by different people who knew him, they keep killing him and bringing him back and killing him and bringing him back and killing him. <laughs> or Laura, where she's supposed to be dead and then she shows up alive one day. Or there's just all of this play with the line between life and death as a kind of site of frustrated, dark desiring to know. It's <laughs> so bad, in short, you just want to know. <laughs> what are you in? It's a kind of Gnostic view of the world or <laughs> knowledge. It's going to be. So, anyway, I went on and on about that. <laughs> but
1: okay but the, cor- <laughs> the corpse was a very important figure to you
0: yeah i think i even wound up calling it the corpse in film noir or something like that to, just cool. to be lurid and interesting no one cared what i did i had the worst committee ever so they did not care okay. i could have turned in you know newspaper <laughs> between covers so they have known. <laughs> <laughs> nobody ever read it but so, i think that's what i did
1: were there not enough corpses in nightmare alley should there have been more
0: for me, there was one too many. <laughs> <laughs> the first corpse, the first one. The weird father. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's not so much the number; it's the kind of significance of the encounter and what it does. I oh, mean, right. you know, for for a lot of people, they look they point to Citizen Kane as having an unexpected effect. It not only does the the, the tremendously chopped up voiceover flashback complexity becomes a, a one of the leading characteristics of film noir. Mm-hmm. Um, it does that. But it also does, you start with the dead body, Charles Foster Kane, and you start interrogating for meaning. Not only the meaning of Charles Foster Kane, but a kind of, there there becomes like this added mystery that's beyond just Rosebud. (laughs) All the more literal stuff. It becomes like a referendum, not only on one man's life, which no matter how much you investigate, you never feel like you can put him together as a puzzle. Mm -hmm. It's any life it, it, we're, we're fundamentally in a dark dark we're in a nightmare <laughs> alley. We're, we're in a terribly dark mystery and a bad world and we don't know why we're here or what we're doing or or what we should doing it gets people don't like this but it gets quasi mystical
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. okay at least in some of its most powerful ones yeah
1: i mean i in a way i could see how del toro's vision fit he um, that he's that I, that's
0: where we get closer to him being more noiry. Yeah. He, he wants to do the world as a dark vision. Right. Right. It's just that it's, again, he, he leaves out the, you've got to have a foot on the harsh pave- pavement. You have to you have to have something that makes it, you know, because that's what most people would say is more characteristic of film noir. It's yeah. such a gritty look at usually urban life. Yeah. The bad city. The bad city of modernity is a big part of it. You occasionally get a rural film noir and they're Quite powerful, but you know that's mm-hmm. not the that's not the main characteristic. It's almost always night. Night in the city is literally the name of a great film noir, and it really helps you zero in on two key points: right. night and city. <laughs> are the two things, and that's you know a way of talking about modernity. Yes, which exactly. Has cut us off from whole belief systems, but replaced it with nothing that we can use.
1: This to me seems very like Del Toro's, um, I don't know if we, shortcomings or, or rather like the parts about him that skirt that traditional mm-hmm. foot in social mm-hmm. critique seems, you know, connected to a larger critique of mainstream Hollywood, which is that there's so few, there's like very little um, uh, view of institutions of power everything yeah. is reduced to the individual or to right. some in the case of del Toro maybe um like an inexplicably uh if not bad like sinister universe you know mm-hmm. um that's bad for reasons we can't articulate our name
0: and I think that's it for me he, he he's too much willing to accept as a given I think it's it's his just he loves horror yeah <laughs> he just ex- he just seems to be willing to accept a kind of I don't know gothicy horror reality without A feeling of we're in some way this is being interrogated Mm -hmm. sometimes literally by the main character sometimes in side conversations that occur between people Mm -hmm. about the strangeness of of the world that they're in um he doesn't really at least in as i'm remembering he doesn't seem to do that he just it's like you can almost hear him pitching it right the whole world is a carnivalesque night world Mm -hmm. and we're in it and you're like okay that's a that's not a bad start but And then, but then you're right, it all just comes down to Stan's dreadful, doomed path through it. Right. Which doesn't seem to have any implications, really, for anyone else.
1: It doesn't. And if, I mean, God, sorry if we're belaboring this, but also, I I mean, in a way, I was grateful that we weren't given an in-depth psychological explanation for whatever Stan Mm -hmm. did to his father. Mm
0: -hmm. Except
1: that, hey, families are complicated. (laughs) <laughs> but I, yeah. I, I appreciate that there was no like facile psych one oh one explanation. Mm. On the other That's hand, true. it's very I don't know, uh it's very unsatisfying to introduce that tidbit about his past and illustrate it with like a recurring visual you know return yes. um exactly. with no explanation it's like i i right. don't know you could have just left that alone
0: <laughs> yeah but, and and it's especially irritating to me because one of the things i love about the 47 version is the casual way the tyrone power stand talks about his upbringing you know it's terrible but he's also in a world where it's typical you know, in the club yeah. <laughs> who yeah. wasn't being beaten <laughs> you know it was just the way it was and right. so he's not it's not that special he brings it up in a casual way usually smiling and talking about something else uh-huh um so it isn't being hammered on as this is what's wrong with stan so you know so the, the 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 what's wrong with stan can much more easily be like you know he had a rough start but look at the world he's in <laughs> right right well, look at his response to the world he's in and then from there and you can go from there and start building your own kind of interpretation in fact my interpretation of, of nightmare alley I've never seen
1: what i you
0: I've mean? never seen that it's just the passion the passion to not be a sucker is the passion to not be a human you know he's got this mm-hmm. drive that I don't think other people think is as profound as I do
1: mm, that makes so much you know, sense
0: the, that Xena that constantly warning him against it. He's just not willing to be among the people. And admittedly looking at how the people live, you're like, well, there's a lot of justice <laughs> to that. <Yeah. laughs> but why that becomes a sickness. Most people don't seem interested in that. Why in that, that thing in and of itself. And they do hammer on that. Mm-hmm. You know, he just wants to be this great con artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and anything that fosters that, he loves it. And he overly loves it. He's just like with relish. And, <laughs> and that, that that's, That's important to the impact of the film. I don't think most people are interested in that. I am, because I suffer from it myself. (laughs) <laughs> a very Capricorn you know, thing to say It is a very Capricorn <laughs> thing And believe me when I became a socialist The hardest thing was like Wait you're telling me I have to identify with the people now? <laughs> well that's gonna be tough That's going against the habits of a lifetime That unseemly okay. hard. <laughs> <laughs> really, I suffered from all of this My whole goal is to just get up and out baby Up yeah. and out Yeah. And yeah so I'm Stan all over so can, I, it interests me more, I guess.
1: You can still be a socialist and have disdain for the people.
0: <laughs> no, no, I really come around much. I'm much better The I'm general public. Can we rephrase it as the yeah. general public? Yeah, the general yeah. public. <laughs> so, um, I was just, I was just much meaner as a you know in my, in my 20s ever so much <laughs> you hit your started getting into your 40s etc you become a sap of the first you become a sucker and you just have to learn to like it <laughs> uh,
1: i don't think we're gonna get any better than that i think
0: like done <laughs> cut, <print. laughs> well great that was easier than i thought i feel like there's probably 50 more things that we should i should say but i'm not gonna say that
1: i I think you gave us a lovely overview of film noir i learned things listeners i'm I'm sure you did too
0: (laughs) oh i hope so because that is it for our nightmare alleys and film noir um it's the last of our favorite film genre series at least for the time being you never know we might feel the genre urge come over us again (laughs) thank you dear listeners and of course triple thanks for our subscribers who keep us in wood grain alcohol. Oh. <laughs> um, if you're not a subscriber yet, but you like what you hear, please consider signing up with Patreon for all the film suck content. So just the half you can get that's publicly available. You can follow news of the podcast on Facebook, inter- Instagram, and Twitter. Please join us in two weeks. We have a great special true confessions episode coming up <laughs> that we call Strange Attractions. Unlikely actors we love in an unseemly manner. Up. You have to tune in to find out <laughs> who we're gonna name. Holy crap! <laughs> Until next time, you guys. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>